0: Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.
1: What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prof G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I mean, why do people believe in this stuff? Like, isn't life on Earth bad enough? Are things not bad enough for you? Do you have to imagine some other problem coming from outer space? You know, no, I do not believe
3: hello and welcome to good one a podcast about jokes i'm your host jesse david fox this week's guest is fran lee woods why did fran agree to do this show i do not know but she did and i think it's pretty classy of us to have her you could technically call Fran a, a humorist or a wit based on her wildly popular books of comedic essays, Metropolitan Life, and Social Studies. However, it should be noted, and, you know, no shade to Fran wits, but she hasn't um, released a book in my lifetime. Instead, Fran makes, you know, good money speaking in public, as can be seen in Pretend It's a City, the six-part Netflix series she co-created with her old pal Martin Scorsese. She's essentially like a stand-up comedian for the sort of person who would never be caught dead in a comedy club. Though, I don't think of her as a stand-up, per se. Honestly, it reminds me of seeing the director Kevin Smith in college. I believe this is probably the first time Friendly Roots and Kevin Smith have been compared, but they are both from New Jersey. Um... Kevin does these things where just sort of people ask him nerdy questions about the type of thing they imagined he'd be interested in, and then he just sort of talks about it for so long. That's kind of what Fran does, but instead of interested in, people ask her questions about things they assume she'd hate. She is a professional talker. She is also a comedy fan in so much as she's willing to be positive about anything in public. So I thought I'd do my best just to ask her about all these things. We, we don't break down a joke like... We don't break down a joke this episode like we do most of the time on the show because Fran doesn't have, you know, quote-unquote material. That said, she does have shtick—the things she finds herself talking about over and over. Uh, We will play an example of that before the interview. Also, um, uh, be warned, there is no laughing ground. Uh, Her internet was cutting out, and also I was too embarrassed to bring it up. So, I think we had fun. Well, I think I had fun. I have no idea what she felt. So, here is Friendly butts.
4: With texting and social networking, emailing, phone calls. How how are you with that? Are you a texter or are you like I to talk own on the phone? none
2: of these things. None of these no, things. I don't have a computer. I don't have an um, iPhone, a cell phone, iPad, iPad. No cell phone. I have a regular phone. I have an address. That is sufficient. When they first invented um, computers, I mean, computers in people's houses, um, they were called word processors. Right. And a friend of mine got one and she said, you have to see this thing. I went over to her house and she showed me this thing. And what it looked like to me and what it was kind of at the time was a very fast kind of typewriter. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't have a typewriter. I never had the old machines. So I didn't have a typewriter. I wrote with a ballpoint pen. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I don't need this. This is just a very fast typewriter. I don't even have a typewriter because I don't know how to type. So, I'm I'm not getting into this. So, of course, not knowing. I didn't know the whole world was going to go into this machine. You know, (laughs) so it did, but it was little by little. I wasn't really noticing it. And now the whole world is in it. And now people say, and now you don't know about these things. You know, but it isn't true, because people are constantly telling me about these things. So I know about these things, or I know as much as I want to. I know more than I want to. It's like, to me, it's like the Kardashians. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, you right. know, like I've never seen the Kardashians, but I know about the Kardashians. <laughs> what did we know about them, yeah. Okay, and yeah, that's the way I feel it. about the internet. Yeah. yeah. Which I know, in some way, is connected to the Kardashians. All the things I know about the internet are either things that people have told me or showed me because people are always like acting like poor friend, she has no ability to find this out. Let me show you friend. Um, and these are people, you know, some that I don't even know them half the time. So I'm delighted to see them approaching me like this. Yeah. But in the last week, two different people, both younger than me, but one not much younger than me, and one much younger than me, um, one explained to me what Instagram was. And the other person explained to me what Twitter was. And it made me so angry that I said, let me explain something to you. I don't not have these things because I don't know what they are. I don't have these things because I do know what they are. That's why I don't have them.
3: I am here with Fran Leibovitz. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: You're welcome. Uh,
3: So this is a podcast ostensibly about comedy. So I want to start by talking about comedy. Um, I was listening to you talk on, I think it was Tig Notaro's podcast, and you said stand-up is your favorite form of entertainment. Um which I was surprised to hear. can you talk a little bit more about that? why?
2: um I believe that you that I said this, but I you know i i, I, I would have been more accurate if I had said one of my favorite forms of entertainment uh um, sure I yeah. mean, <laughs> I, you know, and I haven't seen stand-up in a long time, I have to say, but I always loved it. you know, there used to be I don't know what you know decade this was there was a, a, t- a time where there were, like, in the middle of the night, these kind of comedy shows on TV, where there would be one yeah. comedian after another standing in front of a brick wall. You know, there could be, like, hundreds of comedians in one week. Um, partially because um, it doesn't involve spectacle, which I loathe. In other words, there's mm-hmm. not people singing and dancing, which I hate. I mean, I don't mean I hate singing and dancing, but, you know, I hate a very elaborate version of it. Yes. Um, so it's um, it's purely cognitive stand-up comedy. Um it's usually one person. Occasionally, there's more than one person. Um, that uh, not, I mean, there aren't that many people that are really great at it. Um, but there are more people good at it than you would imagine. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it's just something I enjoy.
3: Yeah. Um, when you, you you said you distinguish there between good and great at it, what does it mean to you to be great at it? What does great at stand-up look for like for you?
2: Great is Richard Pryor. If you're not Richard Pryor, which no one is, Okay, so, you know, I mean, I saw Richard Pryor numerous times, uh, you know, when he was alive, obviously. Um, The last time I remember seeing Richard Pryor um, was at town hall, I think. Um, And I would be only uh, slightly inaccurate to say that the audience was like three-quarters comedians. Okay, Mm -hmm. almost everyone, not everyone, but almost everyone else was a comedian. You know, what I um, observed uh, uh, that night, which was many years ago, Was the idea that it's Richard Pryor? Like, (laughs) you know, we're not Richard Pryor, it's Richard Pryor. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, obviously no one else is gonna be as good as Richard Pryor um, since no one has since that I'm aware of. And that was a long time ago, you know. um, But there are still many very good comedians. Yeah. Um, There aren't many people who think Lenny Bruce was the greatest comedian. I'm not that old, so I never saw him live. You know, uh, I've heard all of his records, you know, it's very, even if Lenny say was the greatest comedian or Richard Pryor was the greatest comedian, um, uh, stamp company requires context. You can, yeah. it's not like someone singing. It requires a lot more context than almost any other form of entertainment that I can think of. And that's partially because yeah. the comedian's usually alone, you know, so he's, yeah. you know, but, uh, and, you know, and it's, it's also a taste, and you know, like anything else, you know, some people like George Carlin a lot more. You know, I never did. I mean, I liked him, but I never liked him that much. You mm-hmm. know, so um, it, it's you know, a lot of these things are just simply personal preferences.
3: The um, the only other comedian I've seen you talk a, somewhat about praising was Chris Rock.
2: Well, Chris Rock, I know. And you like Chris? I I like him personally, and I
3: yeah. uh, and
2: I like him as a comedian. I mean, there probably are more comedians that I like as comedians than I like personally.
3: Yeah. Were there comedians around, like, in the 70s, 80s when you were out? Like, were they mingling the, that scene in that way? No.
2: I mean, there was a very much bigger, like, distinction between, say, show business, which was comedians, mm. you know, which basically the people I hang around with looked down on, you know. So, the uh for instance, like a lot of people say, well, Saturday Night Live, you know, started in the 70s, but I think it did, you know, and it was in New York um, and, you know, didn't, you know, you think it was great. And I said, we looked down at Saturday Night Live, it was television, <laughs> television, who watched television, you know, no. Um, now there's far fewer distinctions, you know, between, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, even though you, you uh, work for a magazine that makes a a, a very false distinction between high and low brown, and like half the time you think, really? Like, or you can move this here, or basically this is all middle brow. Um, but you know these things are uh, not very uh, common anymore. And in fact, in certain quarters, not allowed.
3: Yeah, I was going to ask you about the the rise of middle brow, and then how you you were in a time where like highbrow was a distinct thing, and then all TV was middle brow, and now we have a intra. When we talk about highbrow, we're talking about highbrow TV or lowbrow TV.
2: Right. I mean, the idea of highbrow TV would have been just, you know, a contradiction in terms, you know, as simple as that. You know, I mean, TV was very looked down on. And I didn't even have a TV when I was young. You know, I mean, uh, when I was really, I, I don't mean when I was a child we had one. But I mean, uh, first moved to New York, I didn't have a TV because TVs cost like $200, you know. Yeah. Uh, and also you also had to be home to watch it. If I was going to be home watching TV, I didn't have to live in New York. Um. So yes, of course. I mean, TV is becoming an incredible different
3: thing. I mean, one of the things that definitely has been taken more politically, especially even in my lifetime, you notice obviously is like in the last thirty years, how comedy has been treated seemingly is is quite different, and and both culturally, but also in the society, the amount of sort of status we've given comedians. H- have you noticed that shift? Do you have a, a a sense of how that happened, or or even an opinion about how that is happening?
2: It's definitely changed. That is exactly true. What you said was exactly true. I think partially it happened because, uh, well, I'm sure I'm going to kill for this, because of a general lowering of standards. So (laughs) obviously, if there's no such thing as great and everything is great and everything is important, then comedians are great artists. Now, the truth is that most comedians are not artists. They're entertainers. There is a difference. Mm-hmm. I know you're not allowed to say this. There, The one upside to being as old as I am, I say it, what do I care? You're not going to ask me the problem. Yeah. I don't care. So, you know, uh, the truth is that most comedians are entertainers. Some are artists. Okay? To me, the difference between an entertainer and an artist is are you mostly interested in the audience's response? You know, and that was one of the things that, you know, one of the reasons people look down on television. When the reason you looked on mm. television was not just because it was really basically an advertising medium, you know, but also because it lived or not based on how many people liked it. You know, yeah. so the t- truth is, and this has always been true, you know, and it's never going to be true. You know, if something is liked by a zillion people, it's not that good. It's just not possible for it to be that good. It would be possible, I think, with pizza and also in order to get lots of people to like things you have to make them understandable to lots of people. Yeah. So, uh, and so some, you can see it with, you know, there's a kind of comedian that I loathe, you know, which is the kind of comedian that is going, you know, right behind whatever the comedian's saying, love me, love me, do you love me, do you I hate mm. that. Like, some of the comedians who are like that are very hostile to the audience, but they really want to be loved by the audience. You know, this to me shows a complete misunderstanding of, you know, of what an audience is. You know, they do not love you. Mm-hmm. If you think that's love, you pick a problems than whether or not you're a successful comedian. And so, you know, the whole idea of what a comedian is has changed. People have an expectation that not all, but a very significant number of comedians, there's an expectation that they will also be like political policy experts. You know, that they will also have not just political opinions, um, but political wisdom to impart. You know, mm-hmm. that would be so unlikely. You know, since almost no one has this wisdom to impart, um, it's not, it shouldn't certainly be a requirement for uh, for, for uh, comedians. Um, I realize that probably now, being a stand-up comedian, must be incredibly fraught because of all the things mm-hmm. you're allowed to say. Because truthfully, no matter what people think, humor is making fun of things. It is mm-hmm. making fun of things in both senses, like making fun of, which is criticizing. You know... And making fun, fun, you know, we're going to have fun criticizing something really now, you know, where you can barely say that you like someone's T-shirt or dislike someone's T-shirt, you know, without having, you know, half the country fall on top of you. Um, So it must be very difficult, very fraught for comedians.
3: But imagine, I mean, like, I I think if anything, it being difficult is. For, I mean, as you said, there are a lot of good comedians. And if anything, like like you often say, there's too many writers, right? You, that's a thing. And there's arguably maybe too many good comedians, that it has to be harder. We should be making it harder. We should demand more of these people, especially now that we give them so much clout.
2: Well, you should demand, you know, more that they be better comedians. But you can't demand <laughs> that they be better people, is my point. You know, I mean, mm. this very high bar for the character of entertainers, who have always been like not among your finest examples of the human being? This is just not gonna happen. You know, it's not gonna turn out that this stand up comic is the Dalai Lama. You know, yeah. there's gonna be a lot of things wrong with this person.
3: You know, you consider yourself a writer, um, and I consider myself a writer, though I spend most of my time doing this. Um, you obviously make most of your living doing speaking gigs. In process, how do you feel like what you do is different from what a comedian does?
2: Well, first of all, comedians prepare. They write jokes or they write their act, whatever they call it. You know, they don't all tell jokes. I do nothing. Yeah. I do nothing. I show up. I do nothing. I do not prepare. I don't know what we're going to talk about. The what I do uh, or what I did before the virus and what I will sure. try to do should proceed. Um, someone interviews me on the stage for half an hour. Um, I do not see the questions. I do not know the questions. I do not want to see the questions. And then I take questions from the audience for an hour I do not know the questions. I do not see the questions. I do not take cards from the audience. They raise their hand. I call them. They don't have a question. So it's zero labor. I -hmm. mean, zero. I always say to my agent, they pay me for getting there because I actually enjoy doing that and I hate traveling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they pay me for having to, you know, take the delayed flight and let's sit on the runway for hours and all the problems that you have with traveling. That's what I think the check is for. Comedians, uh write their act, they try it out, they go to little clubs, you know, mm-hmm. if they have a chance to not be in a little club all the time, um, they try it out. They they don't do things that they think don't work, meaning the audience doesn't laugh. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the audience doesn't laugh. You know, I mean, I haven't been to comedy clubs in many years, but it, it was never my um, observation that comedy clubs were full of geniuses. You know? So, like, you know, you don't think it's funny, you know? I realize, of course, that comedians need an audience, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, some of these audiences, who cares if they love?
3: I mean, there's, there, there's a thing some comedians say, which is there's sometimes where you, you do poorly and it's, it's bad, you messed up. But sometimes you're like, you don't want to do well in front of this audience. There are certain audiences you should bomb in front of.
2: And I, th- I'm, I'm certain that's the case, you know, so yeah. that, uh, you know, but I, I don't think they have really any other recourse.
3: You, I mean, it's clearly you don't, as you said, you don't have material, you don't have things that you refine, but you do have what I would affectionately refer to as shtick in in both public speaking and in Pretend It's a City. You'll start an answer in one place and then you finish it in another place. There are certain questions you just sort of, I imagine, get asked all the time and you give answers that are proper answers to those questions. Just like if I was asked the same questions over time, I would probably refine my answers there's like you know how you talk about technology there's the sort of history of gay rights how you talk about your writer's block there's the how you talk about forgiveness and how forgiveness is inherently christian are do you are you aware that these are sort of it's it's not necessarily material but there are these things that you have these are part of your bag of jokes or things to talk about are these things you refine over time are you paying attention to how people respond to them.
2: this is wholly not my fault if people ask me the same question over and over again I will give the same answer if I gave a different answer I'd be lying so I give a truthful answer the answer would be the same every single time if you people if people kept asking me how tall I was and I kept saying five foot four and then people would say you know she has this stick she keeps saying she's five foot four <laughs> if I said to you, I'm six foot four, what would you say? No, you're not. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's out of the question. So, you know, I wouldn't mind at all if I was never asked the same questions again, but I am not in mm-hmm. charge of asking the questions. So
3: yeah, you'd rather not be asked the same things over and over. Again. Yes. In the documentaries with with Martin Scorsese, are there any conversations of what will be included? Does he ask, or or is it just a matter of you He talks to you, you do a variety of speaking engagements, and it's just up to him what gets included.
2: Well, it's ultimately up to Marty. I, you know, I would, But, uh, you know, I, I did two different things with Marty. I did public speaking, which was a documentary on HBO, and then we did this yeah. uh, Netflix series. Um, in public speaking, I had no contractual ability to say anything, you know. Hmm. So uh, the only thing I did say was I wanted Marty to take something out, Um that he put in, that, not me, not something I said. If it wasn't something I said, he would have taken it out. Um, yeah. And it took me, like, a year and a half to get it taken out, because he really liked it. Um, in this, uh, uh, I had much more say in it, but you know, it's only in such a way, like, I don't uh, you know, what to have that in, or something like that, but basically, you know, I am not really as good a movie director as Marty is. So, mm-hmm. I really like, don't tell marty what to do you know because marty is like a really really good movie director uh sure uh so uh and i also don't think in that way i mean in general i've had i had a couple ideas for this that he used it's a it's a way of thinking you know the mm-hmm. uh, marty thinks of things in a certain way or visualize them a certain way but also marty spends you know literally years and even in this um editing so and he yeah. also there's two editors on it so Mostly the shooting of even this Netflix thing, which was, I don't know, like if you watch it all at once, you know, three and a half hours long. Um, the shooting, I don't know how many shooting days there were, but very few. Certainly, you know, fewer than three weeks. The amount of time they took editing was over two years. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, Marty likes to shoot. I know that, you know, but uh, the editing is really how Marty makes the film. Um, and that takes really a long time. So there was billions of hours, you know, uh, of me talking because there, you know, I've been talking for billions of hours since I was born. Um, And also other things like walking in the street and all that kind of stuff. Mm. The the other things that he shot. Um, And Marty, you know, has this in his head. I I don't have this in my head.
3: You you mentioned you had a few ideas that you wanted to try. Can you share any of what are the things that you were like, oh, I want to see?
2: A friend of mine, I didn't know about that. Uh, Like miniature city in Queens, Mm. you know. I even even though that was built during the nineteen sixty four World's Fair, which I went to twice, when it was (laughs) nineteen sixty four. But I didn't go to that. I didn't know that was there. So a friend of mine happened to see it and told me, uh, "You should see this. You would love this, and you should put this in your thing with Marty." So I went to look at it. I thought this is fantastic. I told Marty, who didn't know of it but hadn't seen it. Mm. I said, "We should shoot there, Marty." He said. We should. It's it's in Queens, right? I said, right. He goes. How will we get there? <laughs> How will we get there? Mar- when I made my deal with Marty for public speaking, this was the entire deal. Someone will drive you there, Marty, and you'll get there. You'll be in Queens. So that was my idea, and uh, th- I, that you know, a lot of people didn't know about that place. A lots of people didn't know about that place. I mean, that really? diorama. You know. Yeah,
4: uh, yeah,
2: yeah. I mean. I mean, a lot of people who lived in New York their whole lives didn't know about that, you know, so that that was one of my ideas. Um, And I had another little like visual idea. And that was pretty much it for this as far as cinematic ideas. So
3: how does it then feel? I mean, you you are a a writer by mindset and part of writing is you a certain amount of control of how you present yourself. And how does it feel to bet that? You're essentially like giving Marty the control of what part of Fran Lebowitz is being presented.
2: Well, I mean, first of all, I trust him. Second of all, mm. Marty likes me a lot more than almost anyone. So mm. you know, uh, <laughs> e- even in things Marty does that I you know I prefer not that thing. The uh, the impulse of his is um, positive. You know. Marty's very tuned to the rhythm of how I speak, you know. Mm. Um, so to some people, it's a shtick. Um, to Marty, um, he has uh, compared it very often. Well. It's like jazz. It's like listening to a jazz solo. That's how he edits, you know, how he edits me talking. Now, I never know this, except he talked to me about this recently. But I, I never mm. know when Marty's editing. So, you know, I don't know this. And he, he uh, we tried to get, you know, that last thing to
3: be done, 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 done.
2: You know, that's how he hears it Marty Marty's Sorry. also very um interested in music you know uh it's very important to
3: music you know you you talk about a distinction between one of the many distinctions between you and comedian and partly the comedian's desire for love or approval or whatever from the audience they 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 care about what the audience feels and how they are taking it and they care about them laughing you necessarily don't do that but what do you then want for the audience? Like, you clearly want them to have a good time. What is your relationship to an audience? How do you then conceive of what is happening? Well,
2: you know, I mean, I, I mean, the best way I can think to answer this question is that, you know, for the last several years, you know, when I do these speaking engagements, the audience comes to see me. Yeah. You know, so they already like me. Otherwise, they're not coming. So... um, I realize that in any given theater, it's not the majority of the population in the United States. Okay, mm. I'm aware of that. There's also cities I never go to, because there's no way I can sell these cities. So, I don't go there. During the, uh, the Democratic primary for the presidency in, uh, tw- for 2016, I was consistently booed by my own audience. Now, I have been booed before in my life if I was on mm. a panel. You know, when people come to see the other people, the ones they liked, and then got mad at me for what I said. But I have never been booed by people who only came to see me. And this is because every time the first question would be, what do you think of Bernie Sanders? (laughs) And every time I said, I did not like Bernie Sanders, and my entire audience would boo me. This was dozens and dozens of times. Mm -hmm. Um, So that uh, I realized that the people who come to see me Also like Bernie Sanders. This was not something that I relished knowing, by the way. Um, But this turned out to be a fact. It also turned out to be the fact that every single person I encountered during that period, you know, who was like under 30, liked Bernie Sanders. You know, so I mean, and to me, this was why they liked him. You know, but, you know, uh, of course, you know, I mean, but uh, other than that, you know, I don't, they like you before they come. I mean, they may not, you know, agree with you you know, and and they may not always boo you by not agreeing with you, Um, or as times have become more and more um, fraught with, you know, concern over whether you're offending someone, Hmm. sometimes there will be a moment where I see or hear the audience thinking, can I laugh at this? Am I allowed to laugh at this? Or is this something Fran should go to prison for? You know, I mean, because those are the two choices now.
3: Do you get heckled?
2: I have a few times in my life, not for many, many years, but whenever someone once said to me, when someone yells at you from the audience, you look so shocked. And it's true, I am shocked. Like, I think, how dumb could you be? You know, really, don't start with me. You know, I mean, it's just a stupid thing. You know, I mean, I, I know this sounds horrible and arrogant, but so what? I mean, it's stupid. Don't do it. Do not think about it. So it happens. It hasn't happened a long time. And when it did, used to happen in the it would be on college campuses. And it would be the kind of mm-hmm. college campuses that sold beer before, you know, the, speaking. Not all do that, you know. Um And so it was my belief. It happened to me a few times. Uh, every time it happened to me, it was a drunk boy, you know, mm-hmm. um, who perhaps was not like, you know, uh, that smart before he got drunk. Um, and then certainly, you no know, smarter afterward, um, and always with a bunch of other boys, because you know that behavior is you know like kind of gang behavior. You know that's not something someone's going to do by themselves.
3: When you started doing these audience Q and As the or the public sort of being interviewed, were were other people doing this? Was this sort of an idea that you came up with? That? I invented. How it. did you do? So talk about inventing that. What, I invented. Where it. Did, I
2: believe. <laughs> You know, I could be wrong, and now you have this modern device, you can look all the way back to the 12th century and see if that's true, but I uh, believe that I invented the onstage interview um because I used to give readings, you know, and I stopped wanting to read this old stuff, you know, I was still getting asked to do them, and I would say, this is, no, I'm not going to read this again, it's like, it's too old, this came out three years ago, or, you know, four years ago, or, <clears throat> and... Once I was, I, I used to do, um, and I did for many years, uh, every year, a benefit for the San, San Francisco Public Library um, at a very beautiful theater they have in San Francisco. And I said, I don't want to do a reading. You know, I'm going to do the benefit. It's important, you know, but uh, someone shouldn't be on the stage get like a local journalist. There used to, be, it used to be that every city had like a number of great local journalists because every city mm-hmm. had newspapers. You know, um, and so, you know, sometimes now that people ask me, who would you like to interview I'm going to a place, you know, in the the, the country somewhere, and I'll say, do you still have a newspaper? Because if you did, get one of those reporters. Because journalists, interviewing someone's a skill, and it's a skill journalists have. And guess what? Not everyone can do it. Guess what? Don't ask your boyfriend to do it, okay? (laughs) Not everyone can do it. So, uh, and I think that's how I invented it.
3: Yeah. I, have a, I personally, you know, I, I've done a lot of them. I personally have a lot of feelings about what makes a good or bad audience question. Um, or if, if they even ask a question, do you have any uh, advice you'd give to someone if they're going to be going to an audience Q&A about how to behave properly?
2: Well, you know, don't confuse a question with an answer. Okay, because um, I don't allow mics in the audience when I speak. Um, and a mm. lot of places do that, especially places that are recording it, you know, I mean, so that um, I've had numerous fights with people know you can't have mics in the audience. I don't care if it's a bad quality for your recording. I don't care. Um, because if you have mics in the audience, you get answers from the audience. You know, you have people stand up and they give you, you know, their big opinion, which, you know, if I wanted to hear it, I'll go see you. OK, but uh, <laughs> so I don't allow that. Um, uh, it doesn't really matter to me. I mean, if, if someone would ask. A question, you know, that I found, like, personally offensive, I just wouldn't answer it. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it doesn't happen very much, something like that. In all the years I've been doing this, which has been since, you know, 1978, I remember my favorite question that I was ever asked, Mm -hmm. and it was during the Iranian hostage crisis. And it was someone in San Francisco asked me, who's your favorite hostage? Mm -hmm. And I don't know the name of this guy who asked me this question, but I have charged this question. But it's really hard to describe this to someone who's young, who who doesn't even know about the Iranian hostage crisis, who doesn't know Mm. that this uh, Iranian hostage crisis invented the 24-hour news cycle. And this Mm -hmm. was on 24 hours a day. And it was on the front page of every newspaper every single day because no one in the United States could believe that get the hostages back. What is wrong with you? And they would really go like, literally, day 75, the hostages are still not back. Day, And so during this like over a year, they publicized every single hostage personally, which is very mm-hmm. unusual then. So that this is the name of the hostage. You know, this is where he's from. This is where he went to summer camp. Yeah. This is like, you know, every single thing about them, um, yeah. including their wives. So I said to this a guy, asked me this question. I said, I don't have a favorite hostage. But I have a least favorite hostage wife, and um, I still don't remember her name. I would not say it in case she's still alive. Um, mm. uh, and we knew about their wives. We knew about their families. We knew every single thing about them. Um, so that uh, that the country, you know, people say now how divided the country is, and it is. You know, the country was very unified by that. The country really mm. wanted the back. You know, it's yeah. very different than now. Now, half the country would say keep the hostages. The other <laughs> half of the country would say don't call them hostages. That's demeaning.
3: Um, I know you said you you have no interest in watching uh, Bowen Yang's recent impression of you on Saturday Night Live, um, but I was I was talking to Bowen and I was wondering if you had any insight or advice for someone who was going to do an impression of you since this is going to be a representation of you in the world, if you have anything you'd like them to do?
2: Don't do it. I don't like it. I mean, I didn't see it. I didn't. First of all, I didn't know it was on, going to be on, okay? Mm -hmm. So I didn't know it was going to be on. If I'd known it was going to be on, I wouldn't have watched it. I never watched myself on TV. I can't stand watching myself. Um, And I never could. Even when I was young and looked different, I still could never stand it. Um, I don't like cartoons of myself or caricatures of me. Mm no one does I don't care what they tell you this it, it no one likes it you know people always say oh I love it it was so flattering it was so funny I don't like it yeah yeah um I I have nothing against this guy who I now know who he is because someone showed me it's this guy um mm-hmm. I uh there's nothing you can do about this you know this is what people do um some people yes. I know some people say they like it but I believe they're lying
3: um I will say he did, did one he did it out of love and also he he felt very inspired by doing it it seems like he something about inhabiting you was very empowering for him um he was wondering if you feel like you talk more physically because you've have all this experience of talking on stage like a comedian might move around more do you do you feel like you talk with your hands more than you would normally because it is a somewhat of a show
2: you know I never knew I did that until I shall hope speaking. You know this this documentary Marty made about me in, in 2010. I never knew I did that until I saw public speaking, and I thought, "What is wrong with you?" You know. So it's apparently just something I've always done. I believe that I do it more uh, in you know public because you can't smoke anywhere. So mm. you know, I think that if you saw me um, in a place where you could smoke, like my apartment um, or people's apartments, or you know places I go with my friends where you can smoke. That I probably would do it less, you know. I mean, uh, so but that's just a guess on my part. But since mm-hmm. you're never going to see me on TV or anywhere smoking because you're not allowed to. Um, uh, but I just I was really unaware of it until like ten years ago.
3: I will. This is, I will say this. I think if you say smoking is part of the performance, you're allowed to smoke. Really? Dave Chappelle uses Dave Chappelle smokes inside. When when there used to be comedy clubs, Dave Chappelle smoked cigarettes inside. And he'd say, it's a performance. Part of my performance is that I smoke cigarettes. And he'd smoke cigarettes. I've seen Dave Chappelle
2: smoke. I saw him smoke in Radio City, a musical where you're not allowed to smoke. And he just does it. Okay. So, you know, you're not allowed to do it. You know, he just does it. Um, He is, uh, you can't do it. You can't do it in New York. You can't do it if you're in a play. And this is incredibly stupid. In a play in New York, if a character smokes a cigarette, it can't be a cigarette. It has to be some kind of something made out of I don't know, tea or something. You know, it can't be tobacco.
4: Yeah. You
2: know, uh, uh, so that uh, you know, he he just does it. You know, there's yeah. many people that just do things that are illegal and nothing happens to them. Um, so that uh, I've seen Keith Richards told me, oh, you you can smoke. I I was going to do the uh, uh, Jimmy Fallon show. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, the horrible thing about the Jimmy Fallon show is how long it takes to get downstairs to smoke. And then you're Rockefeller Center, which this happened to be around Christmas time, you know, before the virus. Yeah. And it's a nightmare. There's like a billion people going to see the Christmas tree. And Keith said, well, why do you have to go outside? You could smoke there. I was talking to Keith Richards, and he said, I said, no, you can't. He said, yes, you can smoke right in there. I smoked right in there. I said, well, you who's going to tell you to put it out, Keith? You know, So you can smoke there. Um, he had no idea you weren't allowed to smoke there. Because if you mm-hmm. never ask if you can smoke there, and you happen to be Keith Richards,
3: no one's going to say anything to you. Um, what did you think of Dave Chappelle?
2: I think he's a fantastic guy. I, I love
3: him as a comedian.
2: Uh, he's, re- he's, he's really funny. And he's really talented. Um, and, you know, sometimes people say, "Did you know Dave Chappelle said this? Do you agree with this? I I don't have to agree with a comedian, you know. I mean, I think he says things I don't agree with. That's absolutely true. Um, I've never met anyone I don't agree with that I don't disagree with. There's no such yeah, thing yeah. as a person you don't disagree uh, agree with. Um, I think he's a wonderful comedian. I think he's one of the best comedians there is.
3: You mentioned Fallon and doing late night what how do you approach those shows do they do pre interviews with you like they do other people or you refuse they do you
2: can't not do them they do them but you know they do them i always they always say we know you don't like to do this you know um, and I, you know so i do it you know they uh, i don't like to do it cuz it's less fun you know i that's why i don't like to do it the host likes to do it cuz then they have some parameters um the show likes it because it gives some you they don't just like you to go on TV and just do what you feel like doing. It? Like you're like you're not on a big network television show. So um and most of the guests want it. Because mostly yeah. the guests are actors. And actors always have a script. So actors really want it. I mean, you know, the um so yeah, I do and you know, so some hosts stick to it more than others, you know, some mm-hmm. hosts don't care if you stick to it or you know, um, they're more concerned, usually, you know, when I am on a, a a talk show, usually you're the last person. You know, it used to be called the Writer's Ghetto. You know, now we're not allowed to say ghetto or writers.
3: We'll be right back with more Friendly Boots.
0: There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam, the soggy morning jog, the why is the dog taking so long, just go already walk, But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com.
1: What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prof G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself.
3: And we're back with Fran Liebwitz. Do you feel like th- the person you are on stage is the same person you are off, or, and, and or on shows? Like, do you feel like your public presentation is the person you are with your friends at dinner or whatever? Yes, I
2: mean, basically. I mean, you know, I, I mean, there's more to me than that. You know, sure. Yes. Uh, uh, so that uh, I mean, in other words, like the things I say are true. By which I mean, these are the things I actually think. These are the things I actually, if I say I did something, I did it. You know, I'm not Andy Kaufman. I'm not a surrealist. I'm not a cubist. You know, if I said these things, they're true. Um, And I used to think everything I say is right. And, you know, I used to say, I used to think my profession is being right. I am always right. Mm -hmm. And then 2016 happened. And so now I never say that anymore. Because I was so wrong about the election. So wrong that and and so many people blame me for being wrong as if my being wrong is why he got elected. So um mm-hmm. I after that it's a very um unsettling thing to be wrong only one time in your life and have it be the time that it was the most globally horrible that you would be wrong.
3: Mm-hmm. I do think that is a universal trend a bit of Donald Trump being elected caused a sort of feeling of mass uncertainty. The idea like obviously because of fake news or whatever. There's also the idea that we have no universal idea of information. But I feel like ever since Donald Trump been elected, the idea of that there's one right answer, all these things has become things that we took seemingly for granted. Like there is the truth has now become so vague.
2: Yes, that's what's horrible about it. I mean, that's really horrible about it, you know, because, you know, this is in fact, you know, what conservatives used to accuse, you know, the left of doing. You know, which is, you know, don't you realize that there's such a thing as right and wrong? And don't you realize there's such a thing as, you know, what is moral and immoral? Um, And then they created this, uh, you know, I don't know what we even call it, you know, this monster and mantra situation um, where there's just no such thing. You know, uh, uh, here's the movie of the crime. That's not much. That's no, that's not really happening. Uh, That guy with the Confederate flag is really not there. If they believe it you know that just like it's not quite half the country but it's close to half the country you know and so you know obviously knowing it's not like you know i always knew there were a lot of stupid people in the world i just know there were that many
3: i think um you know part of the the this this relationship to truth is a little bit what we're talking about before which is sort of context and um you talked about when you started an interview magazine your audience was like 2,000 gay men who all lived in New York City, or the New York City of wherever they lived, and that helped shape your voice. And beyond that, it sort of created a context you're you're working in. And fast forward to now, when you release a thing on Netflix on the internet, where like context is almost completely lost. People just flip on, they're like, "What's this thing?" And then here's Fran Lebowitz. I don't know how much you would care. I assume you wouldn't care that much. But how do you think about the fact of like your perspective being? Brought to people without the sort of same context in which it was formed.
2: There's nothing that could be um, globally understood in the same way. It's not just like New York is different from, you know, uh, Saigon. You know, New York is different by neighborhood, okay? (laughs) Let alone, you know, so there's like 4,000 or more different New York's, okay? That's just New York, all right? So, um, and, you know, Netflix is all over the world so that everyone. But the thing is, it's not me. It's that everybody around the world has a different idea of New York. I mean, most Mm -hmm. people in the world never heard of me, but they all heard of New York. So, Mm -hmm. um, and everyone has a different idea of New York. So, uh, whether they've been here or not. All right. So, uh, there's no way to control that. You know, and, you know, I've done quite a few interviews with people around the world since this came out. Um, And it's very interesting to me there, uh, you know, their response, what their sensibility is in in regard to New York. But I don't think it it has anything to do with me. I'm not forming the sensibility. You know, this sensibility is is already formed by people. Some of these people have been frequently to New York. You know, some people have never been to New York. Some people uh, read my books, knew who I was. Some people never heard of me before. So there's no way to control it. The only thing that travels, you know, without that, you know, uh, without that disjunction, is music. You know, music goes all over the world and um, without translators, you know, and, and without a need for translators. Mm. Um, and just that's not just true of anything that has words. It's just simply not true. Do you,
3: when um when you say New York, I want to know what you mean by, when you say New York, what do you mean by New York? Like, I, I feel like I heard you once say like New York, which of course now includes Brooklyn. So, and, or you've said Staten Island doesn't count as New York. So when you say New York, as a person who works at New York Magazine, there's an idea that we have of New York. What when you say New York, what are you? What do you mean?
2: You know that is really too long a question. I mean, um, but I don't mean Brooklyn. Okay, and New York Magazine mm-hmm. now means Brooklyn. You should change your name to Brooklyn. So I, I have nothing against Brooklyn, by the way. Um, sure. Uh, but I do have something against Staten Island. Okay, so you know, uh, I think that other other than people who live in Staten Island. Everyone who doesn't live in Staten Island doesn't think Staten Island is New York, okay? Um, so they can think whatever they like, you know, but we won't know that because we don't know them. Because they are hostile to us. That's why. Because mm-hmm. their politics are hostile to the politics of most people in New York. Um, their sense of everything will. Really. Um, so they voted for Trump and very uh, lavishly voted for Trump. Yes. Both times. Yes. Both times. Like, oh, well, who moved both times. So um, everyone has a different idea of New York, even, you know, but there are certain ideas about New York that everyone has, not ideas. But I mean, for instance, one of the reasons that many people went so crazy when they allowed these like 4,000 story buildings like in mm. Midtown was because the skyline of New York was a recognizable thing and an important thing. To people all over the world. Now, I don't think it ever occurred to anyone, you know, that it wasn't going to stay that way. Because it's not that it was, you know, this is not like, you know, the Himalayas. This isn't something that's been there, you know, for, you know, billions of years. These are man-made buildings and mostly were built, you know, like within the last hundred years or something like that. Yeah. Um, Still, so we felt entitled to them staying that way. You know, don't build this horrible thing. Or why build this horrible thing? Or... Why did you build this thing that bothers every single person who sees it? Um, And so uh, people feel, not just New Yorkers, but New Yorkers feel ownership of New York, for sure. New Yorkers feel they own things. They do not even rent. They feel, Mm. every New Yorker feels, they absolutely, we are the proprietors. That is, that's our skyline. Did you ask us if you could build this stupid thing? You know, the majority of people who live in New York City rent their apartments. You know, uh, probably very low home ownership compared to other places. Um, And yet, people feel totally entitled to the way that owners feel, you know. Um, And that might come from not really owning much. You know, New Yorkers probably own less than most people do anywhere because most people, whether they own or they rent their apartment, it's not big enough. So yeah. they can't have the same amount of stuff in it that people can have in a house somewhere else. You know, they don't have a garage to put the junk in. I read somewhere—I don't know where this was—that some rich person said um, the trouble with moving to Florida is that you have to live in Florida.
3: I think it's fair. Um, you know, you 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 famously wrote about uh, the generation of artists that was lost. Um, Because of AIDS, but um, in public speaking, you said something really interesting, which was also the audience that was lost—the sort of generation of connoisseurs—and you talked about how your own work suffered because of it. it. It made you have to be broader. Can you talk about that? Do you feel still that feeling that you you your your work is still broader than it should be? I mean, like, you know, how do you think about your your audience has shifting and and that loss and how it relates?
2: Well, I, I don't believe that I said that I had to make my word broader because I don't believe I did, but I did but it is definitely true that that audience died. Yeah. so you know and that audience wasn't only my audience, you know that audience was the audience for a number of things um, uh, what you, you know now people would call it like highbrow things um, but mm-hmm. also other things like you know and it allowed people to succeed who never would have succeeded because they were not they were like the 50s. Fiftieth best person. So of course there was a person named Charles Ludlam who you know was uh, had the uh, theater of the ridiculous, and he died. You know he died of AIDS. Um, it, this kind of thing was not. I mean to say it was like an inside thing. It was like even like smaller than that. You know, um, but for instance Charles Ludlam knew every single thing about the theater. You know every mm. single thing. Um, pe- these people were incredibly erudite. You know, um, and then made fun of it you know, um, that doesn't exist anymore. Because that's considered to be, too, that would be too snobbish, you know, to do that. Mm. Um, so all these people died at once almost. I mean, not as fast as, like the virus, you know, the the COVID virus, but over a period of very few years, you know. Uh, and the the audience for these things was the same as the artists. And the only difference was the audience didn't have the talent. They didn't have the talent, but they had the knowledge and they had the... Uh, the sensibility, and that is why they were so harsh as an audience. My feeling always was the harshness came from you are lucky enough to be a ballet dancer. You, I would love to be Suzanne Farrell, but I'm not. You know, I'm Joe Smith. You are Suzanne Farrell, so be perfect. Be perfect because you can do this. We know this can be done perfectly. We have yeah. seen you do this perfectly. We are demand you do this perfectly because if we could do it we would do it perfectly and you know it made everyone better you know it wasn't a delightful thing to lift you know it, it would never be allowed now even if it existed because it's not that nice to be that way you know it's too it's harsh it's not judge just judgmental it is judgment which you're not allowed yeah. to have anymore even judges aren't allowed to have judgment anymore practically <gasps> Well, the judge says this. Who cares what the judge says? Who is he to judge? You know, it's like, you know, I mean, I noticed really probably by the time, probably by the maybe certainly the mid 80s or even the late 80s, how nice um, younger writers were to each other.
4: Hmm.
2: Like, what is this? Camp, day camp or something? Like, really nice. You know, even uh, book reviews, you know, are generally much, much less harsh than they used to be. Much less harsh. You know, Um, basically people praise books or if they don't, it's very rare to read anything harsh, Mm. you know. Um, And I'm not saying it's a delightful thing to write a harsh book review. I personally never would review books because the Times always would ask me to review books that I, they knew I wouldn't like. And I always said, I'm not an assassin, I'm not doing this. And because I've always known that it's just as hard to write a good book, a bad book is a good book. If the Mm -hmm. difference is, you know, someone is talented, someone's not, but the work is just as hard. And also people judge things in a very personal way now as they think that's nicer. Oh, it's much nicer to judge someone as a person than to judge their work against, you know. The New York Times has a feature in the book review. I forget what it's called by the book. I think it's called where they ask writers a bunch of questions. They ask everyone the same Mm -hmm. questions. I did this once. I mean, I asked these questions once. I've noticed that there is a question like, what's the last great book you read? And I noticed that almost every person takes the word great to mean like terrific. (laughs) And like, I take the word great to mean like great.
4: Hmm.
2: Not great like, this is terrific. Or this is, isn't this a great restaurant? I, I don't mean great like that. You know, great. There aren't that many great books, by the way. Which is the last great book you read. Because sometimes you find, even in old age, that, you know what? I never read War and Peace. That's a great book. Okay? The book that some of these people recommend, this is not a great book. This is just a book you just read that you liked. That's not what
3: great means. Great like Richard Pryor, not great like, oh, that was a good... Yeah, not great.
2: Good, you know, but... But, see, there used to be actually like... A descriptor, you know, a great book, you know, was known like, a great composer is Beethoven. A great composer is not something you just saw on TikTok, okay? A great, you know, uh, maybe that person will turn out to be Beethoven, we don't know. Sure. Since that person's nine, but, um, you know, and now people won't even agree on that. Well, maybe Beethoven was a great composer, but... It was not nice to this person or you know i mean um and maybe he was a horrible person i have no idea and neither do you but who cares mm-hmm.
3: yeah i think it was in public speaking you were asked about fame and you blamed andy warhol uh for making fame famous and you said it was a joke that sort of went mainstream uh the exact quote was this is what happens when an inside joke gets into the water supplies and i really like that idea i was wondering if you can sort of talk about what that talk about a little bit more and what does it mean for something that is funny to a small group of people and how that does not make sense when brought to a larger group of people that is popular culture.
2: Well, I mean, it it, it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't make sense. It's it, it, it that the sense of it is different. It's not right. that it sounds illogical, you know, it's that, you know, obviously, anything, if there's an inside joke that gets outside is not inside anymore. It's as simple as that, you know, and so, uh, and then it's, of course, misinterpreted because they don't understand it because they were not inside. So now the outside people know this joke, but it's not the same joke, you know, and it's not always a joke. You know, I mean, it's not yeah. always, it, it's not just jokes that this happens to, you know, when Andy did was like say, he called drag queens who wanted to be movie stars, you're a star, you're a superstar. I'm pretty sure Andy, or someone around Andy, invented the term superstar. Mm. You know, which is a ridiculous location. It's ridiculous. Okay? It's not enough to be a star. You're a superstar. You know, uh, and especially uh, when, you know, applied to these people who were not, not only not superstars, they were not in any way stars at all. They were also in that era, you know, in the, in the 60s, that that started like in the late 60s. I didn't know anything until the early 70s, in the the 70s, um, in the kind of hierarchy of, you know, gay life or whatever you're now allowed to call it, which I don't know. um, And uh, drag queens were a very submerged group Mm. from a status point of view, you know, Um, partially it was illegal. To dress like that it was against the law it was illegal to for a man to wear a dress it was against the law it was a crime a crime and if you uh, if you walked in the street like that you could be arrested and people were arrested um and so it was legal and it was extreme and it was very um by certain kind of uh, uh gay men looked down upon um and, and because it was a crime and because that um uh, I don't know what the word is, the desire to be that, you know, um, that people had, um, would, it, and the not only desire, but the absolute need to live like that a lot, which there were people who did it occasionally, you know, who mm-hmm. who lived like a straight life the rest of the time. You couldn't get a job. You couldn't explain to you that it was against the law. You couldn't go around like this and and exist. You know, you couldn't make money. You couldn't rent an apartment. You couldn't. You couldn't do anything. So, if you live like this all the time, you know, you were, you know, very um, economically distressed. So, um, and, you know, and some a lot of people were uh, taking drugs, not just these people, everyone. And Andy preyed on them. It was exploitive what mm-hmm. he did. You are a star. You're not just a star. You're a superstar. I'm going to make you a totally star. I made mean, it. He couldn't make himself into a movie star. I'm going to make you into a movie mm-hmm. star. Um, so, I, you know, it was very explicit, and he did. Uh, but it was also meant to be funny. Yeah. It was funny, you know, uh, in a hostile way to people, you know. But it wasn't meant to be funny to you, this guy here, who we never heard of. We don't know who he is. Um, and so it gets misinterpreted. It ended up in a way, I mean, I suppose uh, someone could, or perhaps many have, I don't know, you know, sometimes when people look backwards, um, they connect a lot of things to make it seem like this was some sort of progress that really were not connected. They just look connected (laughs) in retrospect, you know, um, because, you know, the big advantage of looking backward is you know what happened. But that doesn't mean that's
3: why it happened,
2: even if it looks
3: like that's why it happened. Do you believe in aliens? Aliens. No, no.
2: I mean I why don't people believe in this stuff? Like, isn't life on Earth bad enough? Are things not bad enough for you? Do you have to imagine some other problem coming from outer space? You know, no, I do not believe. If that's what you mean by aliens, you meant people yes, from yes, outer yes, space yes. or beings from outer space or whatever. No, I do not. I, I don't really, believe in know. I do not believe in anything you have
3: to believe in. Do you think about or care about legacy, your own legacy? Not at all. I don't care.
2: I do not care what happens after I die in any way. In other words, why why do people care about this? Like, I don't care about this. It's like, you know, caring about, you know, what you're going to have for dinner the day after you're dead. Guess what you're going to have? Nothing. Okay? (laughs) So um, since I'm not going to have dinner the day after I'm dead, I don't care.
3: All right. Um, Thank you so much. This has been really fun. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Pretend It's a City on Netflix. Follow Fran friend on social media at. Just kidding, she is not on social media. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Gautam Srikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at Podcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. And if you haven't, please check out my new Patreon podcast, The Specials. Good One is a production of Vulture in the Box Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one.
1: What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the G podcast and an entrepreneur myself.